Welcome to the Gifted Life Podcast, where we have conversations about organ, tissue, and eye donation. I'm Lori Steele. I'm Joey Boudreaux. And I'm Sarah Blakemore. You can always find us at thegiftedlife.org. On today's show... We'll be talking to a friend and colleague in Nevada about his personal transplant story and how that led him to the donation world. And we're going to be talking about the difference between selfish and self-aware. Oh, you don't want to miss that. You guys ready to get to it? Yep. Here we go. Let's do it. Here on the Gifted Life podcast, we like to have great partners. Our goal is to learn more so that we can save more lives. Joey, you know our guest today. Yes, I do. Our guest comes uh, from Nevada. His name is Simon Keith, and he is the chief operating officer there at the Nevada Donor Network. And I've been knowing uh, Simon's name and been knowing him for for quite some time. He's uh, he's kind of a legend among us, and and uh, and I got to hear his name quite a bit more over the last year or so as one of his former employees, Michael Clay, uh, moved here to, uh, to, to Louisiana. And, and all I kept hearing, of course, we have similar titles. And he was like, Joy, but you, you, you still not as uh, cool as, uh, as Simon, oh. as my old boss. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, I'm, I'm cool in my own ways, That's Mike. Right. <laughs> so Simon, uh, thanks for, for, for coming on. And I know that you obviously didn't start at Nevada Donor Network. That wasn't your origin as far as the donation world's concern or transplant. So can you tell us a little bit about the backstory of what brought you to Nevada Donor Network? Yeah, of course. Uh, and happy to be here. Thanks, guys. For, thanks for having me. And um, if we're going to be measuring cool points based on what Michael Clay says, then uh, <laughs> we're all in trouble. <laughs> True. Noted. Yeah, yeah. All right. Yeah, yeah. So um, so the, the sort of the Reader's Digest backstory is that um, – you know, uh, you know, born born in England, raised in Canada. I was a uh, professional athlete just coming out of high school. I played professional uh, soccer or football soccer uh, here um, uh, in the UK right out of high school. And um, for some reason, in the middle of my career, when I was 21 years old, I contracted a, uh, a heart a virus that attacked my heart uh, called viral cardiomyopathy. Um, it was... Um, quick, quick moving. I was sick for, you know, a relatively short time, sort of 18 months uh, fighting it. And uh, the short story is I had a heart transplant when I was 21 years old in 1986. So that was the, that was sort of the, the entree into the world of transplantation and organ donation. And, um, and I knew nothing about it at the time, uh, frankly. So, so, and, and just to expound upon that, so you're a world-class athlete, you know, and, and then all of a sudden you contract this virus that oftentimes it can be something as simple as, as a cold or the flu or something like that. And all of a sudden you go from being able to, you know, run miles and miles to, you know, not probably be, being able to walk down your sidewalk. How'd that feel? Yeah, I think that's, a, that's an accurate uh, portrayal uh, at the time. Uh, as you say, you know, I was, because I was, I mean, I really was a world-class athlete and very fit and very strong and, and, um, 
And so, and I was earning my living that way and it just became more and more difficult. And it did get to a point where, you know, by definition, uh, a transplant is, is certainly life changing. Uh, a heart transplant is clearly life saving. And in order, in the, you know, the way the system works, and we may get into the system a little bit later in this conversation, but the way the system works is, you know, it's a supply and demand, basic economic chain where there just simply isn't enough are on enough organs to go around. So, as you move up the list, which is kind of a list, but as you move up the list and you become more and more desperately sick, um, you know, you sort of got to hit the bottom of the bottom of the ground before you, before you get a transplant. So I was no different in 86 and, um, you know, it was, it was difficult times and, you know, you lose a lot of weight and you, you can't eat and you can't drink and you, you know, you're on machines and, you know, it's just, it's really ugly. And then this, this miracle happens. I don't want to say the word miracle, but miracle happens and, and life, um, resumes. So it was incredible. And so, and we're, we're talking about 1986 and that was only a few years after the cyclosporins, after the anti-rejection medicines were approved, uh, FDA approved. So it, it we're, we're really talking about the infancy in uh, basically in the transplant world, you know, there were transplants before, but, you know, a lot of hits and a lot of misses back then. So when the doctor came to you and told you, I guess, you know, when that you've got uh, someone or first of all, that you need a heart transplant and second, that someone passed away in order for you to live. How, how can you tell us, take us through that time frame? Yeah, I can. Um so at the time, I was actually back in Canada when I first got sick. I went back to the UK in order to have – I actually had my transplant in the UK, the first one in 86. And, um, and as you noted, Joey, that the you know, cyclosporin was really, um, really sort of uh, approved by the FDA, but also uh, globally accepted in sort of 1983. And so that's really when the results uh, of and sustainability of heart transplants, uh, particularly and like all organ transplants, um, really took off. And so, you know, when I, I had actually been turned down in Canada for my for a transplant, and um, and so traveling to the UK, I uh, I was able to to plug into their system, and and frankly. You know the the doctor. They have been doing them for a while, as you noted, with some some hits and lots of misses. And you know when you're when you're 21 and they tell you that you know you need a heart transplant or frankly you're going to die, then you sort of take a big gulp and say, okay, let's uh, let's make it happen. And and I didn't realize this in in previous conversations. Your your first hero was also a soccer player. Yeah, uh, yeah. Fast forward. So the the difference the difference between 1986 and today is that you know back in the 80s it was um, it was really uh, prohibited to contact your donor family or try to have those meetings. It was really frowned upon, and that was driven into our heads. So I didn't actually meet my donor family until 2011, which was 25 years after wow. the transplant. And um, mm. and so lo and behold, when I went to meet them, it was in a small town in Wales, and uh, turned out that the young man who passed away was uh, 17 at the time. I was 21. So he's four years younger than I was. Uh, his name was Jonathan. Uh, John Edward uh, was his first two names, John and Edward. I'll leave his last name out. But so John Edward was a young 17 year old. And um, yeah, uh, 
on July 7th of 1986, him and a group of his pals, 16 and 17 year olds, were down at the, the local park playing a pickup game of football, uh, soccer, and um, and Jonathan suffered a uh, brain aneurysm and uh, passed out on the field. Mm. The ambulance came. Of course, he was declared brain dead. Uh, and uh, they, you know, his father and his mother made the difficult decision to um, donate his organs. And and I obviously became the uh, the ultimate beneficiary of, of clearly a very tragic episode for their family. And and so this young hero gives you a second chance. And you know, of course, again taken back taking taking the audience back to prior to that you know you were a world-class soccer athlete and so tell us a little bit about that transition I know obviously it had to be bugging you you know when you again first could have run miles and miles without stopping and then get to the point where you can't even walk anymore can you take us a little bit you know to, to after the fact once you receive that life-saving gift and that journey back to normal. Yeah, sure, absolutely. So, because I, I mean, I, I had been very, very sick, of course, prior to the transplant. But as soon as I got it, it was a bit like a light switch went went back on. And um, although I was, uh, you know, sort of skinny and and weak, um, the athlete athlete in me just sort of rose up, and and I became focused again, and and sort of decided that. Um, you know, I was going to resume my life uh, that that I had been living, and um, it was not uh, clearly a popular decision. I mean, you can imagine your your loved ones, your family, and and your friends, and your you know even your teammates, and the media, and your coaches, and you know, there's not a lot of people who would encourage uh, me at that time to to pursue playing uh, professional sports again. Um, fortunately for me, the the surgeon who did the uh, the transplant. Uh, his, his name is Sir Terrence English. He's since been knighted for his, you know, his heroism in the transplant world. Sir Terrence came to me about two weeks after the transplant and, and had a very serious conversation with me. And he said, listen, um, you know, the goal of transplantation for you and, and maybe not for everybody, but for you is to resume the life that you led prior to being sick. And so that was sort of the only, the only bar that I measured myself, um, from that day forward. And, um, Despite the the sort of the lack of support, I don't want to say I didn't have support. I had support in many other ways, but not a lot of people were enthusiastic about my return to uh, to the athletics and pushing myself and and you know a lot of fears and a lot of attorneys and a lot of liability uh, signed releases and and um, you know, but but I knew it was what I I, I, I didn't. I didn't return to professional sports to prove a point. I returned to professional sports because that's who I was. So I just resumed my life. I love it. It doesn't sound like you do anything small at all. (laughs) So you're the COO of the Nevada Donor Network. You started this foundation. We want to hear about um, all of that and how you are helping families on their healing journey and um, daring people to live. I love that. Yeah. So, um, so I, I, I was, I was the COO of Nevada. Um, you know, I've recently had, which we'll get into, I'm sure that I recently had a second heart transplant and a kidney transplant in 2019. So I took that opportunity to retire from the organization, but very proud of the work we did at Nevada, that, that we, we did, and they're continuing to do it at Nevada Donor Network. Um, it's a fantastic organization. We, we, you know, from where we started in sort of 2010 to where I left it in 2019, it's just a totally different organization. Uh, and they're doing a great job. Um, you mentioned the foundation. Yeah, we started off the, 
So I mentioned that the, I met my donor family in 2011. And at the same time I had written, I was writing a book. Um, and so I had this sort of, um, this dilemma that I didn't really want to make money from this. So I didn't know how to write a book, release a book, and then have this money from a book. So I decided I'm going to put it into a foundation. And that's sort mm -hmm. of the, that's how the foundation started. And, um, we founded it in 2011, it's 2019 now. And, um, it's probably the best thing I've ever done. It's, uh, it's very rewarding and we're changing and helping a lot of families around the world. All right. So tell us about, um, your goal, your mission with the foundation and how you're able to help young children. Yeah, of course. So the Simon Keith foundation is, uh, you know, we're dedicated to uh, both educate uh, transplant uh, uh, families uh, and support them as well as promote organ donation. Um, one of our major initiatives is that we are, we have, and we will continue to do, uh, we support every child in North America who has a desire to go to the transplant games in their country. So whether it be Canada or United States, um, and we we support them. We support them financially and we support them with uh, fun stuff and emotionally and physically and any way we can. And, uh, and it's uh, super cool because what happens in, in transplants that people are, are sort of blind to not consciously, but they they're blind to is that, is that when you're sick, you get a lot of support. And when you're in the hospital, you get transplanted, you get a lot of support. And on the post transplant, you get a lot of medical support, but you don't really get a lot of life support. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of, you know, particularly with the kids, we support the kids and, um, and I've met a lot of families who are just scared to death. You know, you imagine mm -hmm. your, your young child, uh, getting the short straw and having to have organ transplant, um, and then getting them back to, to a new normal and getting them active and happy and healthy again. It's, uh, it's a challenge. So I see that you're married, have three children. Um, does your wife think you're as amazing as we do just from reading your story or? <laughs> not, a, not a chance. <laughs> uh, so I have three little ones as well. And so uh, they just grow up in the in the donation world. And it's like, well, why wouldn't you be an organ donor? So what's that message to your um, young ones? You just had this transplant. So update us um, on that as well. Yeah, I wish they were young. They were a lot fun, funner and cuter when they were young, <laughs> um, and less expensive, frankly. No, no, I've got so, I, so I've got grown kids. I'm 54 now, nice. and so my oldest is 32. I've got a 27-year-old and a 23-year-old, so they're they're all on, doing their thing on their way. Um, my, my my wife is is amazing. She's an amazing woman. We've been married 30 plus years. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and no, she's amazing. She is, you know, you talk about caregivers and support and, you know, when you go through transplants, which can be very difficult. And she is, without a doubt, the absolute hero of, the, of our story. There's no doubt. Well, you don't sound like you sit and just rest. It seems like you always, <laughs> you push yourself. Uh, so tell us what, what you're doing these days. Well, I have been, I haven't been sitting and resting, but I have been enjoying sort of this uh, semi-retirement. Um, so I'm very active and uh, getting my body back to, to where I need it. And so, um, you know, I'm sort of in the donation world and the transplant world and helping some OPOs uh, with, this, uh, with this new metric and, you know, how, how we need to uh, mobilize with this increased attention to OPOs. So I'm always doing something. 
So tell us, um, for our listeners, where we can find more information about your foundation and how people can get involved. Yeah, so I have two websites. I got uh, the SimonKeith.com, and then I have the SimonKeithFoundation.com. And um, yeah, just click on there. We got lots of information. We, uh, you know, we're we're just having that. We're just doing our little part and having a good time and raising some money and taking care of these kids and and any anything that people want to help us with, we we gladly accept. Have you ever met your donor family from your second heart transplant? I have not yet. I have talked to his wife on the phone. And uh, multiple times, we have a wonderful relationship. Um, and I'm just not sure she's ready yet. Sure. Yeah, it's difficult. It can be. Yep. yep. So we talked to lots of folks. And how would you describe this? Like you lived it, you help others. Um, I just see your story as inspirational hope given a second chance. But from your perspective, from where you sit, when you think about donation, when you when you, when you do this work, uh, what is that to you? Well, there's two sides of the coin, right? There's the there's the recipient side and the donor family side. So, on the recipient side, um, there's this temptation for it to become sort of who you are instead of just a piece of you. And so, I believe that strongly. And um, and so that's why I sort of get along with life and and built businesses and had children and and all these things. And and I think that's really the ultimate gift you can give back to your donor family is to is to get back to normal and and live and and it just grind every day and just, just kill life. So that's, that's sort of on the recipient side. On the donor family side, I think it's, um, I think it's almost universal that although very difficult and, and highly emotional and you can't understand it until you go through it, I don't think. Um, but it is clearly almost unanimously the single silver lining in horrific Mm -hmm. uh, situations that donor families, once they get a little distance from, from the death, uh, point to, they, they, it's almost universal, of course. And you guys know this, that they say, you know, just thank God that I had the courage to, to, to either accept that their decision that my, my loved one had made or that I made it for them. Um, inevitably they, it's the one piece that they just get great, um, uh, condolences from they it's not mm. it's not yeah if that makes sense no it does and I you know speaking as a donor family member I just want to thank you for living life to the absolute fullest because it does matter and it means a lot to those donor families out there to hear you speak yeah thank you so much mm-hmm. and and thank you for your courage and and that those moments because I know that I know that it's tough and um, like I said it's it's a one piece that that I think people carry around with them. Well, I'm excited to see what you do next. I hope that uh, you choose to join us here on The Gifted Life again. Simon Keith, daring people to live. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. In every episode of The Gifted Life, we take a moment for mental health. Yep, Lori, and I believe we're going to learn a lot from her on this one. It's about being selfish versus Mm self-aware. That's to you. No, no, (laughs) She was looking at you when she said it. Hey, Sarah. All right, kids, let's get into it. (laughs) Okay, so how many of us have asked ourselves or told ourselves that if you ask for something you want, you're being selfish. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we all do it, right? Yeah. Um, maybe not all of us. Maybe there are some truly selfish people out there. <laughs> Lori. But uh, <laughs> no, I'm edit, kidding. edit, click, click. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, but really, this is, you know, something that we talk about all the time, which is if you 
take care of yourself first. It's not selfish. So um, selfishness is really putting your needs before other people's needs. And sometimes that's okay because your needs are great. And But really it's about what's enough for you and what do you actually need versus what you want. And when you're self-aware, you can use a different voice and a different choice. So you know, you can voice and a different choice. I like that. <laughs> yeah. So you can keep in mind your own needs as well as others. So recognizing that you do have needs and wants is okay. It's not selfish. It's just knowing yourself. So how do we, you know, distinguish that? So self aware is kind of the balance. Yes. Selfish is more okay. I've got to attend to my own needs and mm. wants. Look what over that, here. Which is <laughs> right. <laughs> And, and where I self-aware is, is yes, I, I recognize that I have these needs and wants and, and maybe I need to tend to them. And I also need to be aware mm-hmm. of how they impact others and, and society. Right. So who's in, whose needs are more, who's the priority? And right. sometimes that is you. Situations. Right. And that's OK. And so um, you need to confront what your own selfish label is. So right. if you can look at yourself and say what actually is selfish versus Mm self-aware, that's the first step. Um, A really good trick to say is if someone was asking for something that you're asking for, would you consider that selfish? So say if your friend was like, I just need to do one hour of laundry today. Would you look at them and say, "Mm, that's kind of selfish? No. No. So why do you do it? Laundry needs to get done. Yes. (laughs) So why do you, why do we do it to ourselves? So confront that label Mm -hmm. for ourselves first and then just start exploring it and, you know, use that to increase your likelihood of vulnerability. So telling people what you need and what you want, it can be yeah. hard. But if you do that and if you're open and honest and clear with your communication, you can get results and you can be tended to. You know, guys, I know this isn't a great source, but Facebook, I'm just going to throw it out there. Yeah. There's, there's the memes going around. So assertive ladies in the workplace. hmm Often frowned upon. Right. Just telling you what you want. Yes. Yes. I'm told what everybody wants all the time. (laughs) That's right. But it's true, you know, for women too. Like we're kind of raised to be a little bit more giving or we're caregivers, right? A lot of women identify with that. So it might be a little bit more difficult for moms out there um, to recognize that saying what you need is okay. Because your needs are just as important as the needs of your family. I am loud and proud. I am drowning. Help me. Yes. <laughs> that's good. Take out the trash. And more people should be like that. You, sh- you really should say that to your family and communicate that um, at work, at home. Whatever you need is just as important and you are just as important. Mm-hmm. How many conversations did we just spur because of that? I hope. When we get home, watch out, Mike Steele. Yep. <laughs> All right. Maybe you have a topic you want Sarah to cover. We'd like to hear from you. Info at thegiftedlife.org. In every episode of The Gifted Life, we honor a hero. Today's hero is Michael Sigler, and his story comes to us from our friends at Nevada Donor Network. Michael Mikey Sigler was born October 17, 2000 in Las Vegas, Nevada, to Courtney Kaplan and Charles Sigler. Mikey made the decision to register as an organ donor when he went to the DMV for his motorcycle endorsement. He took the application from his mother's hands and proudly checked the box to register 
Without hesitation, it made sense. That's just the kind-hearted person he was. Only a few months after that visit to the DMV, an unthinkable motorcycle accident changed the Kaplan-Sigler family's lives forever. On May 17, 2019, just a few months after Mikey registered, the family humbly honored his wishes to donate. They were part of the very first honor walk at University Medical Center of Southern Nevada to say their farewells to young Mikey a few short days before what should have been his high school graduation. Mikey was able to donate five life-saving organs as well as many healing tissues. Mikey's mother, Courtney, shares, We appreciate all the love beyond measure. I embrace donation with all my heart and know my son's legacy lives on. For us, this is a chapter closed and another one opening. I hope one day I can meet the people who are alive today because of Mikey. Remember to hug the ones you love more often. Tell them you love them. Life is precious, and I am so proud of my boy. I still feel him with me every day. He keeps me motivated to tell his story and encourage others to be a hero like Mikey. To read more inspiring stories, please visit nvdonor.org. And now we pause and say thank you to Mikey for the gift of life. our question and answer segment today. I am a registered organ donor on my driver's license. We like that. Is there anything I can do that can be legally recognized to support my wish to donate at the time of my death? Something that the living decision maker cannot supersede and go against my wishes due to grief, etc. Great question. And we appreciate you guys reaching out to the Gifted Life podcast. Joe, you want to field this one? Yeah. So it is a great question. And the answer is, your registry is a legal authorization for donation in every state. So, uh, of course, it is in, in this state, but it is in every state at this point. Now, the important thing that the challenge that we still have to overcome is the med social, the medical social history mm-hmm. to be able to match up the best uh, potential recipient for you at that point. While that is very important piece of the donation process, uh, if you believe that your family is going to be, your next of kin is going to be too emotional mm-hmm. to be able to answer these questions, then I think it's important for you to then appoint a medical power of attorney that uh, that still knows all these answers, or, or maybe you can fill them in on some of this so they, that they can have the questionnaire or they can have the gist of your medical history to be able to answer these questions, to follow through with your decisions as you had previously laid out. Yeah. And, you know, I work with a lot of families and their first question is what kind of questions are going to be on the medical social. And just if you've ever donated blood, it's very similar to that. And it's definitely a great question. If you have questions for us, we just want to remind you about our email, which is info at thegiftedlife.org. Another episode of The Gifted Life in the books. Yes. Special thanks to Simon Keith for coming on and sharing such a a, a great story. Mm -hmm. And then, then of course, paying it forward through his foundation and also for being an inspiration to all of us in the OPO community. Yes. Mm -hmm. Thanks to him. And thank you for listening, guys. If you haven't signed up to be an organ tissue eye donor, we inspired you today. Registerme.org. Registerme.org. It's a one-stop shop no matter where you are. The best place to find us here at The Gifted Life is on our website, thegiftedlife.org. You can listen to all our episodes on our website or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you listen on Apple, please give us a five-star rating and subscribe. If you're on social media, please like our Facebook page, The Gifted Life Podcast, and follow us on both Twitter and Instagram, at Gifted Life Pod.
And now, one more ask. Please go out and do something that you wouldn't normally do to help us make life happen. We're a team, and we appreciate you. Until next time. This is a production of LOPA, or the Louisiana Organ Procurement Agency. The Gifted Life is hosted by Lori Steele, Joey Boudreaux, and Sarah Blakemore. Our executive producer is Kirsten Hines. Producer is Shalon Carraway. Intern is Rebecca Ranham. And we are recorded, engineered, and mixed in our Covington, Louisiana studio by Troy Perez. Troy Perez.